Russell, I hope you did your job. I'm sure I'm sure Ian did. March sixteenth, nineteen ninety one. January nineteenth, twenty thirteen. My brother rode his Harley home to the big meeting last weekend. Monty Buki, this is for you. I'm glad you were there when I got there. From today's daily reflection. AA approved literature, I believe. January 26, rigorous honesty. Who wishes to be rigorously honest and tolerant? Who wants to confess his faults to another and make restitution for harm done? Who cares anything about a higher power, let alone meditation and prayer? Who wants to sacrifice time and energy in trying to carry AA's message to the next sufferer? No, the average alcoholic, self-centered in the extreme, doesn't care for this prospect unless he has to do these things in order to stay alive himself. Well, this ought to be fun. Somebody said, damn, you sponsor half the people that are here. I sponsor half the people that ain't here too, ain't they right? <laughs> My name's Chuck, I'm an alcoholic. And a Leo. That's as good as being a hand to anything else as far as I'm concerned. So if you're happy being whatever else you are besides an alcoholic, hang in there. It might not get worse. I have uh, had the privilege of uh, being in Alcoholics Anonymous in a lot of different places at different times over the last 21 plus years. Home's where Mama is. Mama's here in Cary. She's here tonight, Cary. Thank you so much. I got to mention her now so she won't be pissed off later. <laughs> Because I'm liable to start talking about me because it's one of my favorite subjects and I might forget to talk about her again. Home's also where Mama is. My Mama. My Mama's in L.A. That's Lower Alabama for those of you that are geographically impaired. <laughs> I'm here to tell you that I've been sober ever since I learned how. I learned how in rooms like this with folks like y'all. The most important thing you taught me is I've still got a lot to learn. Which is why I'm still coming back here. Since I had my last drink, I pray to God, drug or astrological reading, July 27, 1991. And I'm extremely grateful for the men and women that have been in my life and crossed my paths from that day until now. I'm fairly well convinced that everyone's been exactly where I needed them to be, exactly when I needed them to be there, in order for me to be here tonight. I uh, am expected to say something inappropriate, so I'll go ahead and get it out of the way. Uh-huh. I was thinking about an alcoholic that was on his way to be with us back in 1989 before the Hank Williams Jr. and Leonard Skinner concert. And I did say before the concert. Some of you in here will understand. And a police officer found him wandering around in a parking lot. And it just started... Uh, with those security alarms on those cars, and back in they were really wild. They made a lot of noise. Anybody remembers? And he was bumping into uh, he was bumping into the cars, and he was walking around the parking lot, and he had his key up there and was waving it around. And the policeman came up to him and he said, "What is wrong with you, sir? And what are you doing?" He said, "My my car is missing. I can't find my car. My car is missing." Well, when did you last see it? It was attached to this. 
Sir, I think you need to come out from behind that car and come on over here and let's see what we can do to help you find your car. So that alcoholic, on his way to join us in 1989, before the Hank Williams Jr. and Leonard Skinner concert, stepped out from behind that car and his pants were unzipped and something was hanging out. And the police officer said, my God, sir, you're exposed. And he looked down and he said, it's worse than I thought. I've lost my wife too. <laughs> Good. We're going to have fun. This is the Carrie Young People's Group of Alcoholics Anonymous, where clearly you don't have to be young to be here. <laughs> I'm so glad for that, because they've let me come in here and uh, be a part of this, and uh, it's been a real joy. Since Carrie and I moved here, Carrie came up here five years ago this month, and um, it's been an absolute joy and a privilege to be a part of what's going on in this group. It's been a, a, a real God thing to watch a lot of y'all come in here brand new and grow up and uh, begin to help other people and see your lives change and see you be amazed before you're halfway through and see a great many of them have the same thing happen to them and happen to them. And I know that it is only through God's grace that I've been given that opportunity. And I know that it's because God's been in this room. And I believe it's because that this message as is described in the 12th step, is what's begun to be spoken in this room more than anything else. It wasn't always that way. I know I got here five years ago and uh, I'd read a little bit out of the book and turn the light off and just share about some of the craziest nonsense I'd ever heard in my life. And uh, They seemed to like it like that, so, you know, I'd, I'd just come and watch. And uh, Then I started sponsoring some guys and... Uh, they said they didn't come over here because of all the crazy stuff that went on. They didn't feel real comfortable with that. So what are you going to do to change it? You going to keep complaining about it? Staying home, playing video games? Watching Carolina basketball? <laughs> are you going to come be a part of it and do something different? So, I guess what I'm really supposed to tell you is what I used to be like, not what this group used to be like. What I used to be like was a mess. I was uh, I was born into a, a, a healthy, non-alcoholic family. My mother and father are God-fearing people. My folks were born and raised in the mountains of western North Carolina over near Waynesville. They come from large families. They were Bible-built, Bible-believing, church-going folks. They were raised right. Um, I, I guess that they lived through the Depression and somehow had everything that they needed, if not everything that they wanted. And there was a lot of love in what went on over there. And they brought that into the home that they built for my sisters and I. Something good was happening in that house because both my younger sisters became doctors. I myself have seen a lot of doctors. I have played a little doctor. I was a much better pharmacist than I was a doctor. But that in time eventually failed. I know that... Um, my granny and my mama had, had plans for me, and growing up to be an alcoholic was not part of their plan. But I seemed to be bound and determined from my earliest memory to do exactly what I wanted to do. I was reading a story. There's a book that's called A Thousand Years of Sobriety, and it's got 20 stories with 50, uh, 20 stories of members with more than 50 years of sobriety that are currently actively involved in Alcoholics Anonymous right now. 
We're blessed to have some of those people in our area right here. Three of them have their stories in that book. And I know for a fact that all three of them are very active in the program Alcoholics Anonymous. I still see them at meetings, and they do a great deal of work, not only for their groups and for the area, but for Alcoholics Anonymous as a whole. What an inspiring thing. And one of these men was sharing in his story that he had got an opportunity to spend time with his father right before his father passed away. And this man had been sober 30 years. And, and he wondered, exactly when, Daddy, do you think I became an alcoholic? And he didn't expect his father to have an answer. And he went to the closet and pulled down a little shoebox and he got out his report cards. And he pointed to the year he was in the seventh grade and he said it started right here. And he could see what happened. And that's pretty much what happened to me. I was a good kid. I was raised to be a good kid. I, I tried to do everything that I was supposed to do. I was in the Boy Scouts. I went to church every time the door swung open. I was in the choir. I was uh, in the uh, church boys groups, the, the, the ambassadors. I went to camp. I was at the Y. I did things. I was at the Red Cross. doing. Uh, I was a lifesaver, a junior lifesaver. I mean, I was really everything that I believed that my parents wanted me to be. My mama dressed me like she wanted me to look like I was supposed to look, and in the late 60s, that was a foreign thing to some people around me. But I was looking different, feeling different, and acting different, and believing I was different from a very early age. Even in my own home, I felt that way. But I do know that at a point in my life, around 15 years old, I took my first drink. And something happened to me that night. And from that night, when I drank more than everybody else, I said and did a lot of things that I don't remember. I got into a whole lot of trouble. I hurt an awful lot of people. And I got really, really sick. Till July the 26th of 1991. When I drank way more than everybody else. And I said and did a lot of things that I don't remember. And I hurt a whole lot of people. And I got into a lot of trouble. And I got really, really sick. Not much changed except it got worse. So I can tell you some of that. But most of you all know that. How many DUIs does it take? I remember saying to my sponsor, that man that shared tonight, he said he only had one DUI. And I've had five. <laughs> and my sponsor said, how many DUIs does it take to be an alcoholic? I've since met people who actually got here without getting any. Y'all are different and special, i got to tell you. You're lucky. That's what you are. And you know it. How many times did I promise that I was never going to do it, only to do it again? How many promises did I make that I was going to do certain things that I said I was going to do, that I really meant I was going to do, that I never did? How many people did I hurt? How many great relationships did I ruin? How many opportunities that anyone would have been grateful to have had even one did I take and just drink all over, all through, and throw it away? I toured some of the finest colleges in the United States. Never went to class. Well, if I did, it was an accident. I did pay a Lebanese boy to go to class for me once. I think that's how I made a B in chemistry at Auburn. No easy, no easy feat. That's strange when you look and you got, you know, like, you got a semester that's got 0, 0.00, and the next semester you got like a, a, a what would it be, a 0. .06? Because <laughs> you made a B in chemistry at the hardest engineering school. Well, I won't say that. Yeah, I'm sorry. Second hardest engineering school. 
So, you know, I kept having difficulty with life because of the choices I was making, only I just thought it was because of something else, and it was really the something else was somebody else. If only they would do what I wanted them to do. And usually it was attached to somebody's pocketbook. I would listen to my mother. She would come and she would sit and she would just, oh God. And I'd just stare at that purse. I'll put up with as much as I have to put up with as long as she writes another check. Day came, she quit writing checks. Day came, she quit taking calls. Day came where I was no longer her son. Day came where she came out of retirement as a registered nurse and took a job in a brand new treatment center so she could try to find out a little more about what was wrong with her son. And the very first patient to come through there was one of them little boys that had been in her house. And she looked at that chart, and all she had to do was change the name. And she knew what was wrong with her son. I think Al-Anon helped her from that point on, at least what she was exposed to when she worked in that treatment center. And she learned how to let go of me. My father had learned that a long time ago. You know, as long as I was willing to do what he asked me to do, he was willing to be supportive of me no matter what else I was doing. But when I made the decision that I didn't want to do those things that he and I had agreed, I was on my own. And he really could have cared less. At least that's what I thought. So I drank a lot over them, not doing what I thought they should have done for me. I drank a lot over the fact that my daddy was an engineer and moved me all over the country. And I was always a new kid. Everywhere I went, all over again. I got to go. I'd live somewhere for a year. Here we go. I got to go. Time to be a new guy again. Special and different. Move from Alabama. Move from Alabama to South Carolina. Don't talk like they do up there. Don't like the same football team. Don't dress like they do. Don't act like they do. Don't nobody know who you are. What's wrong with you? Oh, so now I've got to learn how to act like I'm from here. And then from here and from here and from here. What I didn't know was that later in my life that was all going to come in handy. When I was in that bar being who you wanted me to be. <laughs> I could talk and sound like I was from just about anywhere and we could talk about just about anything and I knew someone somewhere that knew something about some place you had been. Today I have that same experience, but it's because of being sober over 21 years and the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous and getting to know a whole lot of y'all and going to a lot of meetings all over this country and meeting a lot of wonderful people and having lived all over the country sober and recognizing that we're all different. We are all different. And I believe we are all special. But we're all the same. Just like snowflakes. Ain't no two of us quite exactly alike. But underneath, we're all made up the same way. At least if you say your name and you're an alcoholic, that much I know about you. If you and a lot of other things that go along with that, I, I don't know. Maybe. Maybe. Maybe not. I don't know. But if when you take a drink, you're unable to control the amount you drink, or stop entirely when you want to, then you're an alcoholic like I am. I became the type of alcoholic that found the best place for someone like me to be was employed, making money, easy money, where I had access to all of my hobbies and could do whatever it is that I wanted to do. So why go to school when you can be a bartender? And so I worked my way through a variety of jobs until I ended up where I thought I was supposed to be, down in L.A. at the Florabama, behind the bar, 
or half of the bars in the state of Alabama and half of the bars in the state of Florida. So it's drinking time all the time. Because in Alabama, we don't drink on Sunday. Well, we don't sell it on Sunday. We drink on Sunday, but we don't sell it on Sunday. But we sell it in Florida on Sunday. And you can buy it in Florida and take it to Alabama and drink it if you want to. So if you're in a bar that sells it on one side, takes it to the other side, back and forth, back and forth. And it's an amazing kind of a place. There were some drunk guys got together one night, and they were out there throwing mullet at each other. And somehow or another, they invented the intrastate mullet toss. And today, I swear, it's an art festival. It's the annual mullet toss at the Florabama and Gulf Shores, Alabama, which they now call Perdido Key because it sounds better. It's still Gulf Shores. And it's where Mama's at. And it's where my heart is. And with Mama. Carrie from Carrie. So I drank too much and I screwed up my life and I wrecked a lot of cars and I went to jail and I ruined a lot of relationships and I burned up a lot of opportunities and I probably could have been a good bartender and became a bar manager and made some good money, but I would learn that there were other ways to make money besides bartending and bartending became a side job. And I started doing those other things that we like to do. But I covered that good because I ran around with musicians. That was good because they made great customers. And they were a lot of fun. And we got to do things and you got to be special and different. Hanging out with those guys. So I became a guy that people could kind of go to and get to fix whatever it was you needed. And uh, I'm not proud of that. In fact, there's a lot of things I'm going to tell you that I'm not proud of. But I'm not ashamed of the man that I am today. And there's a lot of things I did that I got real dirty doing. I mean really dirty doing. And in time I was able to clean a lot of that up. In time, I was able to let go a lot of that, but only as a result of doing what I've learned to do in these rooms and because there were people here like you that showed me how to do that in your life. So, you know, there was nothing really left for me to do but run away from home, get married and run away from home. seemed like a good idea at the time. And this is the way it was. I got a job. I got a little house. I got a wife. I got a, uh, we had a couple of kids because that was going to fix it. And it did in some ways. It absolutely did. And I love my children. And I got a feeling one and or both of them may be working their way here. They show signs of uh, possibly having the potential, as they say. I think one of them is, uh, likes to puff the magic dragon. <laughs> but he wouldn't drink, Papa. And the other one, well, she's trying to figure out how to pay for the interlock device that they're making her put on her car. So, you know. (laughs) And I ain't helping her. I learned from my daddy and mama. So, you know, I... uh, I was the kind of husband that would, uh, the wife would call me because I was prone not to come home and she would say, you are coming home tonight. Oh yeah, yeah I'm getting ready to leave. We're going to close up here at 6 o'clock. I'm going to leave on the way. I tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to stop and I'm going to grab some pizza. I'm going to go down here and I'm going to see Jay and I'm going to pick up some pizza on the way home, okay, for you and the kids. All right, I'll be there shortly. And when 11 o'clock got there and I came stumbling in on a weeknight and she's crying. And she's telling me that she had had to uh, tell the kids that something had happened and that she didn't know why I kept doing this. Then the kids wake up and then they're crying. And then she starts getting mad because they're up and crying. And the dogs are up and they're wondering what's going on. And everybody's up and everybody's crying. And I was having a good time and feeling good till I came home. 
I get madder than hell and put them all to bed. And I tell them, by God, I'll be back. I'm going to go get some pizza. <laughs> so I go down the road and I go to the pizza place and I get my buddy. He makes some pizza, but he sells beer, so I might as well stay there with him and help some drinks a few beers. And an hour and a half later, me and that cold pizza go back home. I tell them all to get up. And it's time to eat pizza. At one o'clock in the morning. We live next door to a preacher. <clears throat> a Baptist preacher. And his, his daughter was a babysitter for my children. They went to the church school that he had. She would have to come and get them because frequently I had problems getting up and getting them to school where they were supposed to be. That was my job. And the little girl would come take them to school. And he was always wanting to come pray over me and my family and talk to me about what was going on. And particularly when I had talked to him one night in a Jack Daniels moment about my... <clears throat> well, it's true. And, and about the... Uh, passionate experience I had shared uh, with some other folks when I was in high school. This big event that occurred in my life scared me to death. Spiritual experience. I thought you had to be in here to have those, see, when I was new. But I've begun to recall that I must have been having quite a few of them long before I got here or I'd have never got here. And I've had quite a few since I've got here. But I know that this uh, man really loved and cared about my family. And uh, it was the kind of thing that one, uh, one morning I woke up, and it had to have been a Sunday morning, because uh, Saturday night was always a bad night for me. I, it was always a bad night for me. And I guess I'd probably been home just a couple hours. And, and I heard this strange music outside, and we lived on this little lake, and there was like this strange music, and it's like, what is going on, this music? And, and it's singing, and I get up and I go outside, and I'd built a little beach on the back of my house, and there's the preacher, and there's the flock. And unbeknownst to me, it's Easter morning and he's baptizing people. <laughs> so I grabbed a can of tennis balls, opened the back door, and sent my Labradors for a swim. <laughs> How about that? You know who came to see me when I was in treatment? That preacher. And he prayed for me. And he held my hand. And he cautioned me not to let Alcoholics Anonymous brainwash me. Now, if there was ever anyone that knew my brain needed washing, it was him. <laughs> he later went on to be one of the few little country Baptist preachers that brought a meeting Alcoholics Anonymous into his church down in uh, Red Level, Florida. Tiny place. And he loves AA and what AA did for his neighbor. And I, uh, I'll be forever grateful to him and his family for what they did for mine. But the, the, the morning I came home where no one knew where I'd been... Um, again, my wife had had enough, and she had loaded up the young'uns and was all packed up, and the only thing she could do was ask me where I'd been over and over and over, screaming, crying, hysterical, and uh, she kept asking me where I'd been, and I didn't have an answer, because the only reason I came home was to get the check, get a checkbook. And she went to the bedroom with my son, who was only eight or nine months at the time, and he was crying. Now, he wasn't even that old. He was three or four months at the time crying. My daughter was not was just a couple of years old, and she's crying. So my wife and the boy go in the bedroom, and they're crying, and I look in the refrigerator, and there was one beer left in there, one beer, one beer. And I had the checkbook, and I was getting ready to go. And I got that beer, and my daughter came in there, and she asked me where I've been. 
She kept asking me over and over and over where I've been. She pulled that bear out of my hand and it hit the floor. Spilled everywhere. and uh, I didn't hit her, but she was the only thing I thought that was good in my life. And I talked to her the way no daddy should ever talk to a two-year-old girl. And she ran to her room and started crying. And uh, I could hear her in there crying and singing. And I went to see what was going on. And she's holding a little stuffed angel the girl next door had given her. And she was crying and singing that Jesus loves me. Yes, he do. And Jesus loves my papa too. And uh, I remembered something I'd heard as a child. And I knew I was hearing something that was the absolute truth in my life. In my life. And I fell on my knees and hugged my daughter and I knew how sick I was. And I promised her that I was going to get help. I've not had a drink since then. There have been a lot of times I thought about having one. There have been a few times I actually thought it might be a good idea. There have been a couple of times I thought about having something else. You know, I, uh, I went to treatment. There was a guy working with me that was an Alcoholics Anonymous. I hated him, used to drink with him, didn't like him much when we were drinking, and liked him even less when he got sober. And uh, he would come to me and talk about AA, and he was always watching me. Oh, you know, we we got a spot for you. Oh, well, one of these days you're going to be up to the clubhouse. Oh, And all I knew about Alcoholics Anonymous was based on what I saw in him. And I got to tell you, at the time, I looked at AA and I thought, oh, yeah, they accept assholes. (laughs) (laughs) And now here I am, living proof that indeed they do. (laughs) Oh, Randy, he bird-dogged me for a good time. And he was there on them hungover mornings when I was getting in just barely late to punch that clock and to put that check in there to cover that money I'd stolen the night before for that stuff I like to go do in that place where the... Police don't like to go. Oh, yeah, I better tell you about that, too. I got to where I wasn't welcome in most of the bars in my little town in Ocala, Florida. They say that Garth Brooks wrote that song, Oasis, about that nasty place that was out there. And he very well may have, because it was a nasty, nasty place. And it was the kind of place I got kicked out of. And uh, I started going and hanging out where, well, there's no, well, they're open 24 hours a day. And uh, as a little, as the young men that jump out of the trees when you drive by like to say, we got what you want. (laughs) Indeed they did. Rooster, what are you laughing at? (laughs) I told this one time, I was at a a treatment center, and and I got to say, most of the guys had been on the other side of this deal. They had been working. They they, they were employees. And and I'm telling this story, and they're looking at me like, yeah, you wouldn't have pulled that shit on my street, motherfucker. (laughs) I'll pop a cap in your damn But fortunately for them, they didn't, and I didn't get popped, uh, at least that way. And uh, I had some bad things happen to me down there, but I enjoyed it. It was fun. They were good at what they did, and I was pretty good at what I did. I found out if I carry my dog with me, that poor dog. You know, them guy, and I'd always roll the window down on the dog side 
And they was always a you know greed is a powerful force, isn't it? If there was five guys hit that truck, four of them would run, but there was one that would hang on. If I had if I had a twenty dollar bill laying on that dashboard, he he didn't care, man. And I'd tell him get in the back. Come on, get in the back. Let's go. I ain't getting inside. No, I don't want you inside. Get in the back, and we'd go for a ride. And uh, and we just had a good old time, you know. And I don't know who's in the middle of my little town at three o'clock in the morning doing what. Now now my now Randy said, oh yeah, I saw you were in the paper again for making those hooker turns, and I don't know what that meant, but anyway, they did get me for that too and I found out that the newspaper could give you a resentment that didn't go over too good at the little church I can tell you that so I, I and I had a candy apple red truck it wasn't like I was you know slipping around in a black one or something and uh, one night I come to down there and and I know I mean and I came to I didn't just like you know kind of casually wake up or I came to and I didn't know where I was or who these people were or how the hell I got there or much less where my truck was and and I came to and I heard this strange noise you know and uh, it was uh, it was kind of like and I looked up over there and I'm laying I guess and I seen these crusty feet and they were crusty and they had toenails growing over the edge of them and they were like raising up and down and I looked up a little bit more and there was a naked old lady sitting in that chair hitting the crack pipe she said honey if you're okay you okay you got another 20 we can do it again I'm not exactly sure what she was talking about. I'm not sure what it was she was selling for $20 that night. Could have been anything. But I know one thing. If you're ever wondering whether you're an alcoholic or an addict, you have an experience like I had that night, by God, you'll find out quick because I never needed a drink so damn bad in my whole life and I got the hell out of there. All right. That's what I used to be like, you know? I mean, I'm going to go, oh, I whooped a lot of ass when I was drinking. No, I got my ass whooped most of the time. When you're drunk and got your damn Wranglers down around your cowboy boots, it's easy to get drunk and beat up and find yourself in trouble. So I go to a treatment. I promised my daughter I'd go to treatment. I knew the treatment would work because Randy went to treatment. Randy and I worked together. We had the same insurance. Really, what I did was I ran and hid in treatment, and they didn't fire Randy when he ran and hid in treatment, and so I thought at least I'll get a place I can go and try and figure out what's going on for a little bit. Funny thing happened. Here comes Alcoholics Anonymous. Why? A comes to the treatment center. I remember that first night. And, and I will tell you that the blessing in my life was that I was in a treatment center where... Everyone from the director, the doctor, the psychiatrist, the three psychologists, the nurses, the LPNs, even the people in the kitchen and at the front counter and admin. Everyone was actively involved in a 12-step program of recovery in that community, in that treatment center. And they had every kind of meeting you could imagine there. And all these people, when I got on the outside, I saw them in meetings out there as well. And that doctor wrote an intensive treatment plan for me, and he managed it. They stood by me whenever I was sentenced. The employer stood by me when I was sentenced. 
the wife figured that this was the last chance. She told me years later when we were getting a divorce, if she had known it was going to last that long, she would have never given it to me. It's amazing what happens in sobriety. 25-year marriage, 12 and a half years drunk, 12 and a half years sober, apparently didn't like me one way any better than the other. <laughs> I know some of you know how she feels. That <laughs> imagine, imagine what a drink would do for me. You don't like me now. Which reminds me. And I said this the last time I spoke because it was a God's honest truth. Because Carrie was speaking at gratitude and she was giggling. She said, they say that we tell, when we come to speak, that we tell three stories. She doesn't really talk like that, but in my mind she does. <laughs> they, they, say, they say that we tell three stories. There's the one that we think we're going to tell before we go to the podium. And then there's the one that we tell while we're at the podium. And then there's the one we think about what we should have said after we've left the podium. And then there's the fourth one. That's the one y'all going to be telling tonight when you get home, see. <laughs> Hopefully I gave some of y'all that wouldn't have come here if you knew I was speaking something to talk about. <clears throat> I had an amazing experience in treatment. I was damn glad to leave. But one of the most amazing things that happened was Alcoholics Anonymous came into that treatment center. And they made a believer of me at that moment, although I didn't know it at the time, of the power of Alcoholics Anonymous working in the institutions. And I remember that very first meeting when those people came in. When that meeting was over, I didn't want them to leave. I didn't want them to leave. And I remember that years later I was at a, a men's retreat where they show... Uh, my name is Bill W., the movie, repeatedly, and uh, every year they have the retreat. And, and this one year, me and a couple of fellows sat and watched it. And I remember at the end of that movie, when it showed the meeting ending, and the people getting in their cars, and the headlights coming on, and the people driving away. And it had probably been 15 years since that night in the treatment center when I didn't want them to leave. And I felt the warm tears roll down my face because I remembered again. I didn't want you to leave. I think I really became a part of Alcoholics Anonymous then. I had to do a whole lot more than just that. Uh, but I did become a part of Alcoholics Anonymous then. I was uh, kind of appointed and guided to a man that became my first sponsor. That's an absolute God deal. His wife was uh, instrumental in 12-stepping me into that treatment center. He was a man... For those of you that have had problems in Alcoholics Anonymous, I can tell you that this man, much like some other men I know that I admire greatly in Alcoholics Anonymous, while I've come here and had but the one drink, this man had to come here many, many, many times. But it did take in his life. And when he passed away, he was known as the Johnny Appleseed of Alcoholics Anonymous because he'd lived all over the country. He had started new groups, he had started new meetings, he had started new clubhouses, he had sponsored men everywhere who had sponsored men everywhere who had sponsored men everywhere. And he truly had become like the Johnny Appleseed of AA, going about planting it a little bit here and there. And uh, old Boots meant a lot to me. The best thing he did was he told me one night when I couldn't come to the meeting because I didn't have a way to drive was I didn't need to be coming back to that clubhouse anymore if I couldn't get there on my own because he didn't think that I needed to be dependent on the people there to 
get me to and from the meeting all the time. It was time for me to grow up and start tending to myself. And he knew that there was AA around the corner from where I lived, and he knew that I needed to be in a meeting at 8 o'clock at night. And it wasn't his responsibility or anybody else's to see that I got there. I was the one that said I was an alcoholic. And he hurt my feelings. But I called, and I went to a meeting, and it was, I could ride my bicycle. It wasn't even, I swear it wasn't even two miles away. And I get to this meeting, and I'm in there the first night, and I look around the room, and I see all these people, and they're completely different from the people in the other clubhouse that's like 50 miles away. Those were working people and farmers and some retired people and some some tough low-bottom guys that were being brought from some of the facilities and guys from corrections. And This place that I went to was over in a little retirement community and they're all in there wearing sweaters and got blue hair and white hair and silver hair and, and, and just, you know, looking good and laughing and happy and they're all from up north somewhere. And they said... Uh, would the new guy like to share? I said, yeah, I would. I don't see how y'all can be so damn happy and possibly have the same problems that I do. And they just started laughing even louder. <laughs> Keep coming back, Chuck. Keep coming back. Well, we've got time for just one more. Why don't, uh, Chuck, why don't you pick on someone? Is there someone you'd like to hear from? And I looked around that room and I didn't, I mean, I, I was in a room where I recognized nobody. And as I looked back around the room, there was a man in the corner that I saw that had been part of that group that brought meetings into that treatment center. He had a very distinctive look. And I remembered his name because he had a very distinctive message and voice. And I said, I would like to hear from my friend Gus over there. And he about blew coffee out of his mouth across the room. And he looked up and said, I'm Gus, I'm an alcoholic, I do not know that man, and he is not my friend. (laughs) He became my sponsor that night. And he taught me all those things a sponsor should teach someone. And most of the things he taught me and the things that he's still teaching me are by the example of the life that he's living. And he showed me, as I showed him for several years, we don't have to be drunk to do stupid things. And he showed me how to live through that. And he showed me what to do when you know that you're not the man that God called you to be. And he showed me how to suit up and show up, and give up, and grow up, and sit down, and sometimes I can shut up. He's an amazing guy. He rarely shares in the meetings, uh, but he's always outside when the meeting's over. Either before, he either comes early, uh, or he's out there late. And more often than not, he's one of the last ones to leave. And I know that when he put me in the van, because first step for me was shut up, Chucky, and get in the van. We're going to another meeting. And I remember I was in the van, and, and the guys, it was, it's always with him, it was newcomers in the back. So I got picked up first and dropped off last, which was good, because I got to sit in the front of the van for five minutes. But then I got moved to the back of the van. But I ended up being the last one to leave. And he would tell me things and share with me things. And you know, so many times I would have a bright idea. 
I mean, when you've been sentenced to five years in the state penitentiary and it's been suspended contingent on you fulfilling an intensive supervisory probation, and I'm talking about peeing in a cup every time that phone rings, meeting with a counselor at the Salvation Army, meeting with a counselor at the treatment center, going to aftercare for two years, doing my uh, retribution through the employer, becoming a guy who was responsible with a time card, having to show people where I'd been and what I was doing, becoming the guy who had to go down to the West Central Florida Driver and Program, Improvement Program and take all three, one, two, three courses, becoming a guy who had to go fulfill his thousand hours of community service that someone thought was a good idea by painting the police station in the little town I raised so much hell in. And the chief changing his mind on the color after I get it finished. You know. <laughs> God bless you, Chief Williams. You saved my life. And yet I still had bright ideas in early recovery. And some of the things I was not too sure about was a lot of what I was hearing in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous because I was in a room with people at night that were all 25, 30, and 40 years sober and they had all gotten sober from up north somewhere bitching about how it wasn't the same down here. But thank God for me, they came from everywhere and they brought that message to that little tiny place where there was just one flashing light. One flashing light outside the only modern building in Holder, a little community center that we met in. And I, uh, I received what they had to offer. But these folks had been sober a long time, and they weren't talking about the steps. They were talking about life. They were talking about life issues as it faced their life at that time in their recovery. Then I was in the drop-in center at noon, which was filled with crazy people. And they weren't talking about steps. So somehow through this whole period, I spent a lot of time with my sponsor, and I was in a lot of meetings, and I did a lot of work, and I found out that a lot of activity in the same thing is action. And I was blessed to find myself in a place a couple years later where I was given an opportunity to go to a workshop. And I went down to Panama City Beach and spent a weekend with Joe and Charlie, and it changed my life. It was a God thing from the beginning to the end. We met for three days then. It was a workshop similar to this thing the guy's going to do in Wake Forest. It was a three-day event. And the Joe that was there was not the Joe McHugh that the guys at the Healing Place know. It was Oklahoma Joe because Joe McHugh had just had his first heart attack and couldn't be there. And no one knew the Oklahoma Joe. And I was in the room right next to him. And he smoked as much as I did. And we sat outside and we talked all night. And we'd go back there and we'd hit that big book. And I'm telling you, I found out that there was things in that book those folks had been talking about for years that I didn't have any idea they were talking about that suddenly it was like I was learning a whole new language. And today I know that the message of recovery is in that book. And today I know that the big book subtitle, the story of how thousands of men and women have recovered, is my story as well. And it's your story as well. Your story is part of the big book story. The big book contains the message that's required for me to recover from this hopeless, progressively, potentially fatal disease that's known as alcoholism. And my life has changed immensely from the time that I was given the opportunity to begin to understand that the black words on the white page and the blue book meant what they meant. 
And if I started wondering that something was being out of, taken out of context, what I needed to do was get that book down and see what the context was. And if I really wanted to know more about it, I needed to see what the context of the times that book was written in and what had happened prior to that and what that meant. And the history has shown me time and time again the loving, guiding hand of God that brought this thing together for us. It's no accident we're right here, right where we're at. And it's no accident that this thing came together the way that it did. But I can promise you that no human hand could have ever put it together like this. So I've learned and experienced some things in the journey through the big book, Alcoholics Anonymous, I never experienced before in my life, and I never thought I would experience in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I've been a part of this now for some time. And I am absolutely convinced that I have not even scratched the surface of what I've learned. My friend Vinny and I were talking earlier today. This little reflections book that we have that's AA approved literature, it had a reflection in here from January the 12th that I thought that was very meaningful. And if you look at January the 12th and you read that little reflection, it's taken a paragraph and it tells you it came from As Bill Sees It. So we went and got the As Bill Sees It book. I'm interested in what the 365 alcoholics had to say on a good day when they wrote their part. But what I'm really interested in is this other part over here when I read this every day. So we went and we got As Bill Sees It. Well, what do you know? There was a little more information, a little more context there. And it said in As Bill Sees It that that was taken from a Grapevine article in 1962. So we went and got another book, the AA-approved Language of the Heart. And we turned to the section that was written in the 1960s, and lo and behold, there was the article that those two paragraphs came from, and there were almost four pages. I will tell you, we were surprised at what we found. And then again, we weren't. I thank God for the men that have touched my life and the women and everyone that's crossed my path and been exactly where they needed to be, exactly when I needed them to be there to help me to understand. This thing was written down for a reason. And it's changed my life. So I told you some things tonight that maybe uh, I shouldn't have. I'm going to tell you something, one more thing about this little group right here. In this group, we have been speaking to you of serious, sometimes tragic things. We have been dealing with alcohol in its worst aspect, but we aren't a glum lot. If newcomers could see no joy or fun in our existence, they wouldn't want it. We absolutely insist on enjoying life. I gave Marty Mann a copy of the manuscript back when she was in the Blythewood Sanitarium in 1938, and it changed her life. And when she got out, she got with an alcoholic that had been in that same place with her named Patty, and he went to Boston with her, and they started a group of Alcoholics Anonymous there. And one of the men that they helped was a man named Jack the Barber. And Jack the Barber helped a man named Sully, and Sully helped a man named Casey. And Casey helped my sponsor. The big book is your story. I hope you'll take the time to find out about it. Thank you.